I was reading recently one of the presidents of Princeton Seminary back in the 19th century, early 1800s, wrote that the word of God, the way we're to receive it, is that it ought to make the impressions on us that God, the author of his word, intended for it to make. And if you think about that, it ought to move us to joy. It ought to move us to awe. It ought to move us to wonder. It ought to move us to taste and to see. It is meant to not just be assented to. It is meant to impress the heart so that it changes and transforms the life. So that as ones who belong to God and have been justified by that work on the cross, declared right in his standing, We are becoming like Christ, the image of God. The love of Christ is being imprinted upon us that we're actually becoming like him so that we can move out into the world offering tastes to a world that is dying and a world that is lonely and a world that is in need of hope and of friendship. Richard, you led my heart to worship, and I rejoice. I praise the Lord for you leading us to come and adore God and glorify God because of that wondrous cross. And as we turn to God's word right now, I want us to be thinking in our minds, even as I read the scripture, as we pray over it, as we look at it this morning, why did Jesus die? We survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. What led him to the cross? Because where we are, and let me just do a brief review before we pray and read the text. As we've been working our way through the first chapter of the book of Romans, verses 1 through 17, if you are outlining it, is kind of the introduction, where Paul introduces himself, and the theme or the thesis of the letter is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that the cross and the death of Christ is a part of. So in the first seven verses, he introduces himself saying, I've been set apart for the gospel. In other words, the gospel is my worldview. The gospel is the prism through which I look towards everything. Then last week, we looked at, he said said he's eager to come preach the gospel at Rome. He told why. He, He wants to visit Rome from a missionary purpose. He wants to go to Spain. The end of the letter will tell us this. And he wants to make Rome as his kind of headquarters, his home base. So he's writing this letter to... And he basically says, here's my thesis. I'm set apart for the gospel, and here's what the gospel is. It is the very power of God. And it's the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And that's his thesis. The rest of the letter is expounding and expositing the gospel. So now in verse 18, and I'm going to read in just a minute, verses 18 to 32, he's beginning, this is the first passage that, in a sense, begins his systematic treaties of unfolding the gospel. And these chapters talk about why we need the gospel. So in other words, these chapters from this point, chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of chapter 3, will basically talk about why did Jesus have to die. So when I survey the wondrous cross was an amazingly appropriate hymn as we enter into this part of our study. So join me in praying asking God's Spirit to lead us, because faith is the gift of God. We don't work up faith. Asking him to give us faith that the word would impress us the way he intends it to impress us. 
Father, we come before you asking that you would illumine our hearts and our minds this morning by your Spirit, that your Spirit would be our teacher, not me, that I would be a fellow worshiper with these beloved people of God, worshiping you, hearing your word, and, and my mouth is moving, but I pray that I would decrease and Jesus, you would increase that we would fall in love with you afresh. Holy Spirit, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now hear the word of the Lord. The text we're looking at this morning is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Friends, this is the very word of the Lord. I want to begin by having, kind of give two illustrations to illustrate this and things to kind of get us thinking about this text and maybe bring it home to our own hearts. Because you may have read read these, that's quite a list at the end, isn't it? And you might be going, this is dangerous, you might be going, wow. I'm glad I'm not those things. That sounds bad if you're insolent, murder, evil. I'm glad I'm not that. Time out. We'll see. And I want to get us thinking about a couple things. You know, I quote Jack Miller a lot, who is the founder of World Harvest Mission. It's a missions agency within our denomination and within our kind of reformed circles. They're now called Surge. Jack Miller was the founder of that. And he used to speak of the glory of God. You know, of course, we exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he said, here's the definition. Here's a practical definition of the glory of God. He said, is the difference between what we can do naturally and what we can do by God's grace. 
He would then challenge individuals and churches. So here's the application to think, how much of God's glory are you experiencing? How much of God's glory are you seeing in your life when you define it that way as the difference between what you can do naturally and what you can only do by God's grace? See, begin to think about that. First of all, what is it we do naturally? The most natural thing to us is turn away from God. The most natural thing for us is to express what the Bible calls our flesh. And the definition of flesh is not your skin here, okay? The definition of flesh is that sinful principle that everything about it is opposed to the glory of God. And that flesh lives in us. That flesh is opposed to the lordship of Christ and surrendering to the lordship of Christ and finding his word beautiful and submitting to his word, his authority in our lives. The flesh, the driving principle of the flesh is you are the captain of your own soul. You are the master of your own fate. And even as Christians, guess what? This is why I love some of those preachers that basically like Christians are the most schizophrenic of all because we have got two opposing principles living in us. We've got the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh is always opposed to God and turning away from God. And Romans chapter 1 is telling us what that looks like. Beginning with the root, and then what that root produces in the way of fruit. And I bet you you're not going to be surprised by this. What am I going to focus on this morning? I'm going to focus on the root. I'm going to focus, because here's our temptation to look at that list and say, that's not me, and I'm going to say, time out. Those are the expressions, that's the fruit we all share in the root. And so we're going to focus on the root. Second thing, biblical illustration now. You know, we use in our confession of sin quite often Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Know what it says? It's a prayer of King David that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See how quickly it rolls off the tongue? And I bet you you knew that. I bet you as soon as I started reading that, you went, oh yeah, I remember that. How well do we think through that? Search me, oh God. What does it look like to search for something? Have you ever lost something really, really important and you wanted to find it? Shay, how would you feel if you lost that new phone of yours that you got for your birthday? But you'd be upset and you'd be searching frantically for it, wouldn't you? You'd be looking for it. Combing things. Now look at the object of what we are told to search. We're told to search our hearts. We're asking God to search our hearts. So as we ask God to search our hearts and kind of uncover, disclose to us what's there, what do you think we are asking God to look for, to uncover the idols of our hearts? To uncover, as I quoted Calvin earlier in the service, that idol-making, and I'm going to spell it not the way Carl did, I-D-L-A, don't be idle, but be idle, I-D-O-L. When we ask God to search us and know our hearts, we're asking God, disclose to us, show us the things I worship and glorify instead of Jesus Christ. Do you have the courage to pray that prayer? Do you know what you're really praying? That's a dangerous prayer. But that's the prayer that will uncover what it is we're worshiping instead of Jesus Christ, that, get this, Jesus Christ spread wide 
His arms of love on the hard wood of the cross, demonstrating kindness and mercy. That is why Jesus Christ died. Not because no matter how heinous we look at the fruits and the expressions and the actions, it's a heart that rejected Him. That said, He's not good enough. I do not trust Him. I trust only myself. And Jesus says, I will die for you. Do you now understand what it looks like to survey the wondrous cross? And so let's take a look at this question, why did Jesus die? And let's look at this heart issue of the problem of idolatry, and let's do it basically, let's ask three questions of the text, okay? What, why, and how? What is the problem? Why is the problem? How do we find the solution? Or how do we apply? I was going to title do this, where is the solution? But you all would know that. Jesus, right? And it's kind of like, well, I, but I want to go, how do we apply Jesus to our hearts? How do we walk in Jesus? So what is the problem? Why do we have the problem? And how do we walk in the solution, apply the solution? Okay? Look with, first of all, let's start with verse 18. Okay, verse 18, we're looking at defining the problem. And verse 18 defines a reality. Not always a comfortable reality, but I want you to think about this. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is, present tense, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth through their unrighteousness. Let's begin to break that down. First of all, the wrath of God it is a real thing, and you want it to be a real thing. Not a popular to- I'm not necessarily speaking on a popular topic this morning. I'm so glad Richard sang what he did, because I think that's, that's more comfortable. I, I'm getting to deliver you some of the bad news. Okay, the wrath of God is a real thing, and there are even theologians today that, and I don't want to impugn motives, I don't know why and stuff, but there are people who deny the wrath of God. Let me give you a practical reason, or basically two reasons why not to deny the wrath of God. One, it's in the Bible. So if we hold to the authority of God's word, I mean, it's, it's one of those things, I could be a real simple preacher right now and say, don't believe me, take a look at what it says. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. But let me even press home, give you kind of an apologetic for it, why you want it. Miroslav Volf is a professor at Yale University, Croatian and Christian. And he wrote, so, and I bring up his heritage and nationality because as a creation, think of, as a Croatian, not creation, he is a creation too, but Croatian, think about what he's experienced looking at the Croatian wars and the injustice and the suffering that he has witnessed And he writes that the wrath of God is the only thing that will prevent sufferers from exacting revenge. Think about it. If you have gone through, no, we've all gone through suffering, but it's to different degrees. But what if you've gone through extreme suffering, extreme injustice, things that you look at and you go, It is not fair. You have been abused. You have been sinned against. You have been damaged. You've experienced real injustice. What is going to keep you from enacting revenge? If you deny the wrath of God, because what the wrath of God is not simply punishment. That's one side of it. If you think of a coin, there are always two sides to a coin. 
The punishment side is one side. The other side of the coin is the making things right. So many words get mixed up in our culture today, and one of them is justice. We think of justice, and we immediately think what the news media tells us. Where justice in the Bible, biblical justice, the justice that, for instance, the prophet Micah commands us, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, means right relationships. It means taking things that are out of joint. I'll give you another illustration. Have you ever dislocated your shoulder? How to dislocate, which is basically a shoulder out of joint? How comfortable is that? That is, biblically speaking, an unjust shoulder because the relationship of how the shoulder is to relate to its joint, it's out of joint. Believe me, at that moment, you want justice. You want wrath. You want it to be put right. God is promising he will put all things to right. He will correct everyone. And here's the choice. Either God does it or we... If we enact revenge, you know what we're doing? We're saying... God, you're really not doing such a good job. I can do your job a little bit better. Let me take on the role. Sit on down. Take a break. I know the psalm says you never slumber or sleep. Take a nap. I got this. I'll do it. Do we really think that you could do as good a job as God? Do you know what people need? Maybe they need more wrath than you're capable of giving. Are you really smart enough to handle God's job? So friends, you want the wrath of God. Now it says it is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And this is where we begin to unpack what the problem is. And in a nutshell, the problem is idolatry. Look with me at verse 25. Verse 25 says, Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. The key word I want you to see there is the word exchange. And I want to put this in context because all of life is an exchange. The gospel is an exchange. It's an exchange of Christ for us. See, we remember we looked at last week what the gospel was from verse 17. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Do you know what that means? That's an exchange of Christ's life for us. That is, our sinfulness, our ungodliness, our unrighteousness that deserves and warrants the wrath of God is imputed and given to Jesus. So our ugliness, that awful list that is in us, is given to Jesus. And I think about this. His righteousness, do you know what that means? His beauty, his loveliness, his perfection of person. His perfect justice. His knowing how to balance truth and love. His knowing how to balance justice and kindness. His knowing how to balance holiness and tenderness. Truth and confrontation and gentleness. He does it all perfectly. And that exchange, that's given to us. That's your standing. So the gospel is an exchange. Guess what idolatry is? It's also an exchange. That's why verse 25 says, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here's the lie. See, one of the things the gospel's revealing is we all need righteousness. We all need, see, 
If the gospel is an exchange, our problem is an exchange. So when we ask God, search our hearts, I'm trying to show you and teach you, this is what you need to look for. What is it you're practically, even though you're a believer, imputed righteous in Christ, practically with the flesh, the way it's going to manifest itself is you are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And what does that mean? You are seeking and searching for and looking for a righteousness apart from Jesus. That righteousness is you're looking for meaning or identity or significance or security, that which your heart thirsts for. See, what we most need in life is this righteousness. This sense, the simplest way I can put it, is righteousness is the reality of ultimately being okay. We all walk through the world with that desire, the desire to be okay. To walk into a room and, not ha- and be okay, meaning somebody can look at you and scoff, or somebody can, and you know you're okay. Somebody can criticize you, and you know you're okay. Somebody cannot like you or be mad at you, and you're okay. You could fail. I could ask you and call on you and say, you know what, I'm tired of preaching. You preach this morning, and instead of going, (laughs) you go, I'm okay. Even if I blow, I can get up and preach, and maybe you think this is a lousy sermon. Guess what? Because of the righteousness of Christ, I'm okay. That is what we seek for. Here's the sin problem. The sin, this is the what The what is we exchange the truth of God. We have the truth and we suppress it. Do you know what that means to suppress something? That means you have it and you're trying to hold it under. Can you see how foolish our rebellion is, our flesh? I mean, sometimes I want to look at my sin and the way it manifests itself, my thoughts, my emotions, all of this and stuff. Sometimes I go, Jeff, you're just so foolish. You're stupid. Look, you got the righteousness of Christ and you're exchanging it. What does the text say? For a lie. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, put it in his commentary. He defined an idol as anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Now that means it could be a good thing. Do you recognize your family may be an idol? Your kids may be an idol? Your grandkids may be an idol? Yes, the New York Yankees may be an idol. Hate to admit it. An idol is anything that occupies the place in your heart and life that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves me. And it rouses me and it attracts so much of my time and attention, my energy, even my money. An idol is anything that you exchange in your practical life. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And do you you see how important this is for practical discipleship? Just to give you a couple of examples, for example, the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments, Have no other God before me. Second commandment, make no graven images. Do you recognize commandments 3 through 10 are all instances of breaking the first two commandments about idolatry? Or to give you a New Testament example, the letter of 1 John, John's first letter that he wrote. 
that he talks about such powerful themes as assurance of salvation and the love of God, obedience and trust. How does he end his letter? After speaking for five chapters, chapter 5, verse 21, the conclusion of it all, he says, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, what is he communicating? He says, idols is the reason, it's the root why you're doing everything and you're, why you're struggling with trust and assurance and confidence and love and all the practical issues. So that's the problem. What? Now why? Why do we have the problem? Look with me at verse 21. Okay? And verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let me be as simple as I can with this. Here's the reason. Here's the why we have idols. We want to control our own lives. Richard Keyes writes, sin predisposes us to want to be independent of God, to be laws unto ourselves or autonomous, so that we do what we want without bowing to his authority. It begins, for although they knew God. That means by virtue of God creating us in his image. That means every human being, even the non-Christian who's not acknowledging God, they may be just more honest than we are. See, you ever realize that the atheist may be more honest than us non-atheists? Because do you know what our sin is? R.C. Sproul used to call it, we're being functional atheists. In other words, we're claiming to believe in God and functionally living as if God's not the Lord. That's a functional atheist. So although they knew God, every human being knew God, was created to, and this is the other thing, created to worship God. We were created to, we're worshiping creatures. That's how we're built. We're built to worship him. So the pattern is actually very simple. Since we were made, for, made by God to worship him, to live for him, to submit to it, acknowledge and give thanks, the text says. But the flesh, that sinful disposition, what Dick Keyes calls the predisposition of our heart, is we want to control our own lives. We want to call our own shots. That's the root. So calling your own shots is functionally being a functional atheist, eliminating God from your life. That doesn't eliminate how God made you. That doesn't eliminate how you were created, which means there's now a void. It leaves a vacuum which must be filled. Guess what you fill it with? God substitutes. You fill it with, I will never be a failure. I will always succeed. Success is my God. Or I will fill it with, as long as my kids are happy, I'll live vicariously through them. Or I will fill it with, I have to be in control of everything. I have to make sure everything is absolutely right. Or I will fill it with, I will have power over you no matter what it does relationally. What are those God's substitutes in our lives? And the consequences, if you look at verse 21, it says, first of all, futile in your thinking. It causes you not to be able to perceive the world aright. 
futile in your thinking means you don't understand God, you don't understand yourself. Do you realize that if you are erecting these God substitutes, you can't have a proper view of God, yourself, others, or the world. You become futile in your thinking and darkened in your understanding. Meaning, as Tim Keller puts it, emotional bondage, slavery. Whatever it is we worship, we must serve. That's the what, that's the why. Now, how do we walk with Jesus and turn to Jesus? And I love Tim Keller's, I'm indebted to his kind of um, thoughts on this, because he basically says the gospel approach, and I think he's taking a lot of this from Martin Luther, because Martin Luther, and I've quoted this before, but I quote it again because I really want you to remember it. When Martin Luther put the 95 theses up on the Wittenberg door, the first thesis said, when Jesus said that we are to repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand, he meant, and listen carefully to the end of this thesis, he said he meant for the entire life of the Christian to be one of repentance. Here is faulty thinking. If we're transformed by the renewing of your mind, let me tell you something that is faulty thinking. It's thinking repentance is somehow for either the beginning of the Christian life, I turn from my sins and I accept Christ, and it's that only, or it's in thinking, it's only when I commit the big sins. Uh-oh, I was caught with the huge sin. Somebody confronted me and told me, you know, like Nathan confronting David, you are the man. Uh-oh. I'm caught with that list at the end of Romans 1. I better repent. And how often does it happen in my life? Well, maybe, hopefully, only once or twice because I, I, I'm trying to avoid the big... You know, we confess to be reformed. You know how anti-reformational that is? When Luther said the entire life of the Christian, he expects it to be normal on Tuesday morning that you are continuously repenting which means turning from your propensity to erect God's substitutes and rejoicing in Christ. Tim Keller calls it repent and rejoice. And here's how he basically says to walk through this. He says the practicality of repentance is begin by naming the idols, being specific, and then unmasking those God substitutes. And here's why we chose Psalm 115 as part, to see how weak and poor they are in themselves, to see that they have mouths. What do mouths do? Our words are what offer relationship. Idols offer relationship, but they can't fulfill. They have eyes. What do eyes do? They give us guidance. You're able to see, find wisdom, be able to know what path to take, turn left, turn right. Idols make a promise to give you sight, but they can't deliver. Idols promise to give you power. You will control your world. They can't fulfill what they promise. Part of the practicality of repentance is to say, on a daily basis, maybe a moment-by-moment -moment basis, this is what my heart manufactures. This is how I exchange the truth of God for a lie, become futile in my thinking, and I now need to seek to, and this is the practicality, mortify them, put them to death by the power of the Holy Spirit, to put them to death. What the great Puritans used to call mortification. You don't hear that word from the pulpit too often, do you? 
but it's putting your idols to death and rejoicing in the gospel, what the old Puritans used to call vivification, bringing to life, getting the affections to be captivated by the beauty of Christ. And this is where the hymn Richard sang comes in again, replacing the idols once again with the reality of the death and resurrection of Christ, with what the gospel is, that exchange, so that no matter what idols you identify and uncover and unmask, you now behold Christ dying and being raised again and living for you. Rejoicing is basically to treasure something, to see its beauty and be captivated by it. Tim Keller says, Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. We need to learn to make it our ambition to be quiet and to behold the love of God for us, the reality of the righteousness of Christ for us. See, the only thing that will change you is what you worship. You are what you worship. Paul Tripp writes, everything you do is done in allegiance to and in pursuit of either the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God. Which is why we come to worship every Sunday. To behold Christ. To have the kingdom of self broken down and to get more and more conformed to the kingdom of God. We come to worship every Sunday to have the kingdom of self dismantled and more and more destroyed and replaced by the kingdom of God, which is why, think about it, if you are not regularly in worship, you are forsaking God's appointed means of destroying the kingdom of self and replacing it functionally with the kingdom of God. The beauty of the gospel being captivated by Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Father. We pray now that you would captivate us by the beauty of Christ. Thank you for the teaching of your word. Paul teaching, why did Jesus die? Why do we need the death of Jesus? Why do we need to survey the wondrous cross? Because our hearts are idol-making factories. And then to rejoice in the fact that even though we, our flesh is continually rejecting you, what did Jesus do? He spread out his arms of love on the hardwood of the cross to take our rejection of him upon himself, to absorb that pain, pain so gruesome we can never fully understand or comprehend. But it can go deeper into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.